This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. More than 122,000 incarcerated people in the U.S. are in solitary confinement. That's according to a report by Solitary Watch and Unlock the Box. That's significantly greater than previous estimates, which were around 80,000, and didn't include reports from local jails. Solitary confinement has been used in prisons and jails across the U.S. since the 1970s. And for one man, the four walls of solitary confinement were all he knew for nearly three decades. The Box, 27 Years in Solitary Confinement, is a short film out now on aljazeera.com. It explores the case of Dennis Hope, a man incarcerated in Texas. He escaped prison twice in the 1990s, and the prison punished him by putting him in solitary confinement in 1994. And it never let him out until last year. After the break, we talk about Dennis's experience and the use of solitary confinement across the country. I'm Dessa, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to discuss. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Join me each week on In Black America as we profile current and historically significant figures whose stories help illuminate life in Black America. You don't want to miss the conversation. KUT Radio and Black America are members of the NPR Network. Thanks for listening to In Black America. Let's get into the story of Dennis Hope with our first guest. Jeremy Young is a senior producer for Fault Lines on Al Jazeera English and recently produced the new episode, The Box, 27 Years in Solitary Confinement. Jeremy, welcome. Thanks for having me back. Can you kind of set this stage for us? Tell us a little bit about Dennis Hope and why he was sentenced to prison in the first place. Absolutely. So uh, Dennis's story is one that's it's almost something that almost feels like it's made in Hollywood. He orchestrated one of the most audacious prison escapes in the history of Texas, maybe anywhere, uh, in 1994 from a maximum security unit that's just south of Houston. And in order to pull off this caper, they accessed the boiler room. They shut down the power to the entire prison. They shut down the backup power and they got up over the fence that they had actually pre-cut so they could get through it quicker. And Dennis had been training for this, and he just takes off, and he just runs. He ends up running more than 20 miles to get away from the prison. And they have all kinds of choppers and dogs, and everyone's trying to capture him. Dennis ends up in front of a a convenience store, and there is a pickup truck that has the keys in it, and it's running. And Dennis hops in the truck and just drives off into the sunset. And then... Well, he uh, continued to rob grocery stores over the course of the next couple months. He was really a thorn in the side of law enforcement. They eventually tracked him down in Memphis, Tennessee, and they brought him back to Texas. And when they brought him back, they put him into the hole. They put him into the box. And that's where he ended up staying for a really long time. And when you say really long time... 
26 years? So with with Dennis's uh, escape for the Mm. first 10 years, he had what's known as an escape risk designator attached to his profile. So he really wasn't going to get out of solitary confinement until that escape risk designator was pulled off of his profile. But in 2007, 2010, it looked like he was going to get out of the box and they never let him out. And so he ends up staying in solitary all the way until February of 2022. And I think when we... When you described the daring premeditated escape and all of the details that were successfully executed to make that um, to make that work, like it sounds as though the prison system was really irked by the success of that escape. Oh, like I that's think a I think that's an understatement. I really? think they were furious. Yeah, because it made them look bad. They mm-hmm. had to deploy. Imagine it's an embarrassment. It's in the newspapers. It's in the television news. This guy's loose. This guy's robbing stores again. They can't capture him. And I think that for a really long time, he, Dennis also spoke out to the media. You know, when he was young, he was sort of this brash, kind of arrogant young man. And uh, everything that he did really irked the Texas Department mm-hmm. of Criminal Justice and the state of Texas. And as part of your interview with Dennis at the Polonsky unit, prison unit in Texas, he, he describes the condition in which he was living in solitary. And I'd like to hear in his voice what that sounded like. I think it's designed to break you. You feel it. There's a part of you that's gone. And there's always that fear of you know, losing your mind. There were things that I would do to try to make sure that I was in touch with, you know, reality. And sometimes, like well, sometimes I would bite my right. and just see, you know, just how far I bit like that. It let me know that I'm alive, that I can feel pain. I don't know. I, I don't like to admit it. Jeremy, can you talk about the actual, like, physical conditions in which Dennis Hope was living? Yeah, so it's he describes it as the size of a parking space, three steps from the bed to the wall, and then three steps back. Uh, he says in the documentary, it's really designed for you to lay down because that's what they want you to do. And I think one of the things that people probably don't understand about solitary confinement and the difference between that and general population is if you're in general population, you can go to religious services. You can go do programming. You can go learn a trade. You can – there's all kinds of different activities that you can do to fill up your day. When you're in a cell for 23 hours a day and you're eating your meals in there, Dennis does his legal research in the cell yeah. – you know, you get one hour where you can get out and you can go to a cage on the on the yard and you can exercise and you can get a shower and then you're back in the cell for the next 23 hours. And, and one of the problems that Texas has is staff shortages. So sometimes there's not enough staff to get people out of the cell. So maybe they have to spend even more time in there. So it's been – it's a really uh, – extre- Dennis describes it as extreme isolation and I think that's a good way to put it. And I know you spoke to a psychiatrist for this documentary to better understand exactly how that kind of isolation, the toll that it takes on somebody. Let's listen to that as well. Of all the suicides that happen in prison, 50% of them happen in solitary confinement. There's only 5% of the prisoners on average in solitary confinement. So this is a phenomenal statistical finding. They just decide, I'm never getting out of here. There's nothing I can do to change my situation. The officers are intent on brutalizing me. So what's the use of going on? Okay, so just to clarify the fact pattern in Dennis Hope's case, his escape attempts were in the 1990s. He's 25 years old. 
he is 54 years old now. He's been, he had been in solitary confinement for decades. What is his life like now? And also, you know, you talk about him doing legal research in the size of, you know, the cell, the size of a parking space. It sounds like he did a lot of spirited, informed self-advocacy. Can you describe, yeah, can you describe that? It's extraordinary. I mean, because he reached out to so many different resources to try and get out of solitary confinement. He wrote legislators. Um, he, he basically would request books from the law library that they would bring to his cell and he would study and he learned how to file a lawsuit all by himself. I mean, one of the incredible things about his story is that when he filed his um, civil rights suit in 2018, he did it all by himself. And it was dismissed by a judge, but attorneys who are with the MacArthur Justice Center saw it and they couldn't believe that this was a lawsuit that was put together just by a prisoner who had been in solitary confinement. And at that point, when he filed that in 2018, it was his 23rd year in isolation, 23rd year. And so if I can fast forward a little bit in the story, um, ultimately, the litigators get involved and they petition the Supreme Court to hear Dennis's case. And his arguments are, one, that there's a lack of due process in his case because he's supposed to be reviewed every six months to get out of solitary confinement, and that never happened. And two, it's cruel and unusual to isolate someone for such a long period of time. Now, incredibly, the lawsuit is filed January 28th of 2022, and guess what happens within a week of him filing the lawsuit? What happens? The Texas Department of Criminal Justice does what they've been unwilling to do. They move him out of solitary confinement. Within a week of him filing the petition before the Supreme Court, they go on to argue that his case is moot because he no longer has standing. He's no longer in solitary confinement. Okay. And the Supreme Court declines to hear his case. So they erode the grounds on which his complaint had had been erected. Well, there's not a lot of transparency at the Supreme Court these days, as you probably know from following the news. So they don't actually explain why they didn't hear the case, but... We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk more with Jeremy and two new guests about the use of solitary confinement across the country. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Let's get back to our conversation by listening to a voicemail we got from one of our listeners. Jeremy in Fort Lauderdale says, Um, I was in solitary confinement when I was about 25 years old. And my mother had died from cancer and I was having a hard time. They um, continued to make me work. And eventually I had an emotional breakdown and got into a fight with one of the guards. All the guards jumped me. 
Um, and then they threw me in solitary confinement by myself while I was grieving. Um, I literally went crazy. I was talking to myself, writing notes, ended up writing a book, actually. Um, I never realized how much I need other people. I was reading a lot and just writing to my dad nonstop. And I want to bring two new voices into the conversation. Tammy Gregg is the deputy director of the ACLU's National Prison Project. Tammy, welcome. Thank you. And Jean Casella, she's the director of Solitary Watch. That's an organization that reports on solitary confinement and prison conditions in the U.S. Jean, welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. Jean, can you tell us a little bit about the history of solitary confinement in the U.S. and its use here? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, solitary is really an American invention. It was uh, started in the early 19th century by Quakers in Pennsylvania who thought they were doing something kind. Um, they would put people alone in their cells with nothing but a Bible to contemplate their sins and become penitent. That's actually the origin of the word penitentiary. Um, but they very soon discovered that it didn't make people penitent. It made them crazy. Um, it made them, you know, really lose their minds in the in the lexicon of the time, and um, they they abandoned the practice. Um, and it was used very sparingly for uh, more than a century uh, in the United States until the rise of mass incarceration began in the 1970s. And then suddenly you have millions of people in prison, um, understaffed, overcrowded, and uh, you have uh, an abandonment of the idea of rehabilitation in favor of the idea of punishment and piling punishment upon punishment. And that's when solitary confinement actually comes into everyday use in our prisons and jails. It's really um, goes hand in hand with mass incarceration. And Jeremy, I know that in learning about um, Dennis Hope's experience there, and also in reading some of Solitary Watch's um, information posted online, the size of the space is a big part of that confinement. Also, I don't know if Dennis's experience is tracked, but the monochromatic universe into which your mind is plot like it's enforced idleness i think was the term that was used in solitary watch can you talk to me about that just like the lack of stimulation yeah and one of the things that i think is totally misunderstood about solitary confinement i know i sort of thought this at first was oh it's a very quiet place it, you're 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 alone and it's really quiet and you're by yourself that's sort of logically what i had thought the reality is it's incredibly noisy. There's mm. gates opening and closing when there's count time. There's people banging on the what's walls. What's count time? I'm sorry. What's the, count time? When they're counting to make mm. sure that everybody's in the cell. And um, the, 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 the noise, you know, because you're, you're locked in this room by yourself and you're hearing things and you end up sort of talking to yourself. And oftentimes you think someone else is in the cell with you. And that's sort of how people slowly start to um, – to go crazy when they're in solitary confinement. And I know that there is some reports, including Dennis's experience of like in a desperate bid to have some sensory input that grounds you to the moment in the room in which you're in. There's a lot of self-harm. Can you describe Dennis's account of biting? 
Yeah, and it's not just Dennis. I mean, this is uh, something that's widespread within solitary confinement. And, um, you know, Dennis, in order to just sort of make sure that he's alive, you know, bites down on his arm. And you'll notice if you watch at the end of the film, we talk about him losing one of his siblings in solitary confinement when he was in solitary and he wasn't able to say goodbye to his sister. He bites down on his finger because it's a difficult topic and you can tell this is like a technique that he uses to deal with stress. And so uh, he's witnessed – I mean that's one of the crazy things too about – Gene was explaining that this practice really started in the 70s and 80s and Dennis goes into prison in the early 90s. And he's there for 27 years. So he's witnessed – I mean there's people who have spent more time in solitary confinement than Dennis but not a lot. And so the amount of self-harm, suicides – just things that he's been able to witness even while in a solitary cell is extraordinary. And you know, some of the occasion for this conversation is because we have new reporting indicating that the number of people currently in solitary is significantly higher than past estimates. Solitary Watch is one of the organizations that gathered data for this recent report showing that more than 122,000 people are in solitary confinement in the U.S. Tammy, why is this so much higher than it used to be, than, than previous understanding? One of the big reasons the number is so much higher is that uh, there's a lack of transparency about the data. Um, there are very few reports that consistently and accurately report how many people are in solitary confinement at any one time. And this report um, that you mentioned that was produced by Solitary Watch and Unlock the Box demonstrates um, that the data has been incorrect. Prior to this time, I'd say last year and before that, the numbers were reported between 50 and 80,000. This report is the best effort to combine um, the information that's available publicly uh, and also that comes from some governmental sources, but it doesn't include an accurate count of every jail, every prison, every immigration detention setting. Uh, so it's still an undercount, but it's more accurate than it has been. So it's not necessarily only that there are additional people in solitary, though that's a big part of the problem. It's also the fact that we finally have numbers that are much more accurate than they have been in the past. I would also note that uh, solitary confinement increased in the pandemic significantly. So there's a report that identifies the fact that it increased 500% during the pandemic, which is just incredible. And as we continue in this conversation, I'm going to include some perspectives from professionals within the prison industry as well. But I want to make a note on terms that infrequently in the language that prison officials use, would you find the term solitary confinement? It goes by a lot of different names. Can we talk a little bit, Tammy, uh, what kind of words would we encounter in inside yeah, thanks for raising that. So often um, prisons, jails, and even the Bureau of Prisons, which is the federal system, says that they do not use what we call, the advocates call, solitary confinement. They say they use restrictive housing. Mm -hmm. They use administrative segregation. They use the shoe. Um, they the shoe. have all was kinds that, of terminology was, that essentially really is solitary confinement if you stick to the UN definition. But the key element is the isolation that you mentioned. Um, it's also a lack of meaningful human contact. contact. The, the um, sensory deprivation and uh, all of those things that lead to the true harms of solitary. 
the, sh- the SHU is uh, SHU Security Housing Unit or Secure Housing Unit. And I-, I think it's really interesting. So if you talk to Texas officials and you mention solitary confinement, they will say they don't use solitary confinement. And they use these terms like restrictive housing and administrative segregation. And logically, you have to think it's because solitary confinement, the concept, has such a bad notion with it that if they were to use that, then people would be even more appalled by the treatment of the people in prison. I'd like now to share what was given to us when we reached out to the Federal Bureau of Prisons about their use of solitary confinement. They sent us a statement. I'm going to read a bit of that. Then we're going to hear a clip from a warden. This presents the motivation from prison officials for the use of solitary confinement, sometimes, as we talked about, which goes by other administrative terms. So the quote here from the Federal Bureau of Prisons An inmate's removal from the general population may become necessary because continued placement in the general population poses a threat to self, staff, other inmates, the public, or to the security of the orderly running of the institution. Inmates in restrictive housing are continuously monitored and reviewed to ensure that continued placement is necessary, including being seen by psychology staff on a daily basis. Inmates are returned to the general population as soon as it is appropriate to do so. And now here's a quick clip from a warden as well. If you've never worked a max unit, you just don't know. But there are guys in there that are really dangerous, that will hurt you, that will hurt staff. Um, I've had staff members assaulted. I've visited staff in hospitals. There are really dangerous people in the penitentiary, and you've got to put them somewhere I'd like to solicit responses to those ideas. That was a retired warden in Texas. First, I'm going to ask Jeremy, when you hear the warden say that solitary confinement is used, uh, how it is used, what is your initial reaction? And is the data, the way that we understand the use of solitary confinement, how it actually affects prison populations, does it bear it out? Does it help increase safety? Well, to follow up on what Tammy said about the lack of transparency for advocates, for family members, it's so hard for them to know what's going on inside the prison. Um, The policy in Texas for um, a long time was that you would get a five-minute phone call every 90 days. So imagine that you get five minutes to talk to your family. I mean, it's it's really – when we talk about extreme isolation, that policy really rings true for me. But, you know, the the other thing I think that's important to point out is, of course, there are times where short-term solitary confinement is necessary for safety and security. But one of the things that states are doing as an alternative, Virginia, for example, has a pilot program where if somebody has a psychotic episode or somebody acts out or someone commits an assault, instead of being sent to an empty, metal, dark, depressing place, they actually have a diversion space set up that's softer, warmer, maybe it has a TV, maybe it has a sofa. And the idea is we don't have to exacerbate what they're going through by sending them to this punitive environment. Alternatively, we could do something different. And Tammy, would you mind speaking to that as well? Have you seen alternatives to solitary confinement that serve the needs described by prison officials? Absolutely. And the concept is separation without isolation. So that can involve many programs that have an opportunity for full days out of cell, um, opportunities for congregate engagement and programming that addresses the safety need. So let me just go back and say separation from the general population. 
but not isolation. And so in addition to the program that Jeremy mentioned, there is the RSVP or Resolve to Stop the Violence Project in San Francisco jails that involves full days out of cell, allows for the programming and the engagement, and it has actually shown a dramatic reduction in violence in jails and the outside community. And, if I, and there are several other programs in New York State, uh, one called the Merle Cooper Program, and then New York City has the CAPS Program. Very similar reductions in um, uh very similar reductions in use of violence mm. and allowing for um, congregate engagement, time out of cell without the isolation component. And, and, and if I can just add to that uh, sort of counter argument that the harms of putting in people in solitary confinement, uh, especially the isolation, is far, it far outstripes many of the arguments that are posed by uh, people in official positions in corrections and jails. The data does not bear out the fact at all that there is reduction in harm in the institution or in the communities when people return. In fact, it's the exact opposite because of the psychological and emotional harms that are not short-term and neither are they ameliorated when you get out. They don't go away. There are so many studies that show even one or two days in solitary can lead to significantly heightened risk of death by accident, suicide, violence, and overdose, which in in very short periods of time after your release. Um, and within being in prison, you suffer from suicide, a greater risk of suicide, self-harm, um, and, 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 and death. Wow. Let's take another quick break, and we'll talk more about what can be done about solitary confinement right after this. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics now on Amazon. We're back with our conversation on solitary confinement. And Jean, I wanted to ask you, it sounds like there's ample and well-substantiated evidence to suggest that solitary just isn't working. It's not working in the prison. It's certainly not working for the people who are experiencing the confinement. And it's not serving the population outside of the prison with reduced rates of violence. Why is it still happening? Why are prisons so reluctant to retire the practice? I think prisons are some of the most change resistant, possibly the most change resistant institutions in our society. Um, I also believe that uh, there's a, a punitive um, paradigm that's really 
saturated our criminal justice system. And that seeps down within the prison as well. Um, Solitary is often called a prison within a prison. So the idea that if people, you know, have exhibit problematic behavior in, in society, you put them in prison. If they exhibit problematic behavior in prison, you put them in solitary. So the idea that isolating people on deeper and deeper levels is somehow going to deal with this uh, problematic behavior. It's, it's pure punishment. It doesn't serve any other purpose. What it does do is, is, make, uh, is make people worse when really what they need is not deprivation. They don't need isolation and deprivation. They actually need more of everything. They need more mental health treatment. They need more prison programming, uh, more opportunities to change their behavior. They need rehabilitation, not more punishment. Hmm. And I'd love now to play a clip from Johnny Perez from a video from The Guardian. He spent three years in solitary confinement at Rikers and now works with the National Religious Campaign Against Torture and can speak directly to that motivation of privation. Can you imagine living in a space so small that you can reach out and touch both walls with your hands? Can you imagine that you're there for a month, a year, or a decade even? I was kept in solitary confinement for three years. My cell would get so quiet that I couldn't hear my own heartbeat. In the summer, it became so hot that the walls started to sweat. At night, the light stayed on, making it difficult to get a night of sleep on a one-inch thick mattress. But none of this compared to the agony of not having someone to laugh with or to hug. My only human contact was a correction officer who fed me cold food through a metal slot in my cell door. My last meal came at 4.30 p.m. and breakfast wasn't until 7 a.m. Depression and thoughts of suicide followed. Until this day, I'm uncomfortable in small spaces. Jeremy, if I remember correctly, uh, Mr. Hope had made petitions or formal requests to see a couple of his family members before they died. Is that correct? That's why he wanted to get out of, one of the reasons he wanted to get out of solitary confinement was to have a contact visit with his mother, his grandmother, his sister. His sister died unexpectedly. He didn't know that that was going to happen. I think that's one of the reasons why it was so difficult for him. But his isolation was so extreme. So was he able to reconnect with his grandmother before she died? No. Was, no. He, re- was he able to reconnect with his mother before she died? No, he was not. So, so as part of our reporting, I reached out to his brother, who is his only uh, living member left in the family. And he was very nervous to engage and talk to us. I spent a lot of time trying to explain to him you know, that it would be really meaningful for us to come and meet him and spend time with him. And we did eventually. We had to drive to Oklahoma. It was a three and a half hour drive. And we brought the interview and we showed him clips from the interview. And it impacted him so much that he's now planning to go visit his brother. And it will be the first in-contact person, in-person contact visit that Dennis will have had in almost 30 years. And in the making of this project, can I ask, like, what was the most revelatory surprise? Was there anything that really stunned you to learn? Well, there's a lot that, I mean, remember, in, in not just Dennis, but we've spoken to um, family members and advocates and, and people over the, throughout the, the course of our reporting. And, and I spoke to several different mothers who lost their sons to suicide in solitary confinement. And some of those conversations were the most difficult ones that, that I had. And because you can feel that a parent um, feels so impotent and so helpless that they don't know exactly what's going on with their loved one. They know that they're they're getting worse and worse, and then they find out that 
they've taken their own life. And one of the parents I talked to said that the Texas Department of Criminal Justice would not hand over their loved one's possessions after he committed suicide. They said that you have to get an attorney. And so it's that kind of sort of upstream swim that people are trying to do to, to keep in touch with their loved ones who are in solitary confinement. And I, I know that we've talked about the dramatic resistance to change and the prison system was flagged uh, earlier in our conversation. Tammy, can I ask, are there any hopeful changes even regionally that you see happening? Are there meaningful and progressive policies at play? Absolutely. Hmm. So on the international level, there are a number of countries, um, many in Europe, um, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, Germany, that have policies where solitary confinement is rarely used. And much of the intent of, of incarcerating people is to rehabilitate and reintegrate them because the vast majority of people in prison are going to return to their communities. And then I would say to people who talk about the fact that international systems are so different from the American system, we have states who have limited solitary confinement, particularly long, um, long-term solitary, to 15 days or less. And some of them uh, have a little bit more time there, but they have review systems in place uh, and due process in place, like Jeremy mentioned, to ensure that the, um, the use of solitary is reviewed. And so we have states like New York, uh, we have New Jersey, there's Colorado, most recently Nevada, um, where there have been limits placed on solitary confinement. And then there are really important limits on solitary confinement for people who are vulnerable, like those who have mental health concerns, uh, pregnant people, um, youth. So there are a lot of different ways where solitary can be, uh, the, the effects can be ameliorated. And Jean, if you're someone like listening to this show in your car, you know, or while walking around a park or something on a lunch break, feeling moved and also just like really uncertain how on earth to connect to that. Like, is there a call to action here? I guess is my question. Is there anything that we can do as citizens or that you would ask of listeners who who might be compelled to get more engaged? Yeah, there definitely is. Um, and I, I do think um, to add to what Tammy says about the, the pace of change um, finally growing, um, Solitary Watch has been around for more than a decade, and we've seen more and more of media coverage recently, and that's why it's so important that we have uh, documentaries like the one that Jeremy produced, also so important why we have shows like this one today, so that we can reach out to those people who... If they were, you know, stopped on a street and told there are 100,000 people being tortured on American soil right now, you know, would be would shock their conscience and they would want to do something about it. Um, there are, as Tammy mentioned, movements in a number of states. Um, I would recommend uh, people go to solitarywatch.org to educate themselves more about solitary and keep up on the news. I would also... Uh, recommend that they go to a website called unlocktheboxcampaign.org to check and see if there are campaigns in their states or their cities against solitary confinement. And there are ample opportunities to join. There are states right now, California, for example, is trying for a second time to pass a pretty sweeping anti-solitary bill 
And um, that's in the legislature right now. It's going to be going to the governor again. He vetoed it last time. There's a place where Californians can really have an influence to end torture in their own state. Great resources. Thank you. And I want to thank all three of you for your time today. Our guests have been Jeremy Young. He's a senior producer for Fault Lines on Al Jazeera English and recently produced the new episode, The Box, 27 Years in Solitary Confinement, which you can find and watch on YouTube. Tammy Gregg is the deputy director of the ACLU's National Prison Project. And Jean Casella, she's the director of Solitary Watch. That's an organization that reports on solitary confinement and prison conditions in the U.S. Remember, we have a text club. It's the fastest way to connect with us. You can find out how to sign up under the Talk to 1A tab at the1a.org. Today's show was produced by Jorgelina Manorea and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Dessa. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. The Bullseye Podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun.